0: June Lu is the new breed of fund manager in Australia. Gradually the old school tie has been tossed in the bin and only those with the drive and ability to deliver performance are being chosen to run the savings of the Australian public. June Lu grew up in communist China. It wasn't until she was deep into secondary schooling did she land in Sydney with the dual task of performing well enough at school to make university and learning Australia's version of English. Once those hurdles were overcome, she ignored tradition and pursued a career in the male-dominated industry of finance. She managed to crack the nut and before long, she had secured a job as an analyst with research and ratings agency Morningstar. Using this as a platform, she moved into stockbroking and within a few years had landed in funds management at Tribeca Investment Partners. For almost 10 years, she honed her skills as a stock analyst before being promoted to portfolio manager in 2016. In 2019, her senior colleague, Sean Fenton, left Tribeca to set up his own funds management business, leaving Joombe to run the $700 million Alpha Plus Long Short Fund. After a rocky start, Joombe quickly resurrected the fortunes of Alpha Plus, and today it is close to $1 billion in size. During this hectic period, Joombe has had the added responsibility of getting her two children through some testing lockdowns. Welcome, Joombe. It has been a busy few years.
1: It's been incredibly busy. Thank you so much um, for uh, for having me. And
0: what's it been like with your two kids? How old are they and they've been homeschooling?
1: Yeah, that's right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so my uh, I have two kids. Um, so one is eight year old, and one is turning eleven. The older girl and a younger boy. And I was just saying earlier that you know it's been an incredible experience to homeschool two kids while go through a reporting season, the full annual reporting season. It's an experience. Perhaps I think I will in future years look back and thinking I you know it's it's been an incredible journey. Really, you know, while I set up their you know morning tea and lunch while I you know watching the market open and then digest all the results. <laughs> and, you know, we work work a system that worked really well. And it just also giving me the opportunity to spend time with them during the business time of the, you know, sort of corporate calendar. And are you're
0: a tough educator, no room for error.
1: Uh, look, you know, I can be a tiger mom at times. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I think I'm more like a witch than a tiger mom. And I think my volume is getting louder and louder. But interestingly, my daughter is getting to the years where, you know, she's turning 11. The volume of my voice doesn't change, doesn't really change. <laughs> her behavior anymore so this is where I'll become a better negotiator I hope <laughs> in the next few years
0: yeah they definitely get tin ears after a while don't they <laughs> all children that's right Let, let's go back and discuss your journey we were at the end where you are today but go back born in China mm. can you give us some color about where it was and the family structure
1: yeah, absolutely. So China was very different. I was born in the 80s in China and there I disclose my age, um, but uh, look, I was born in the 80s and back then in the 80s, China still had a very closed border. So at the time, most of people had very limited resource as in, you know, access to running water, telephone, and even color television, you know, was very difficult to come by. You literally have to pull strings to get a color television. And uh, so the world was very different then. And
0: were you living? in a major city or was it in a rural area?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was living in Shanghai. So it's it's you know, it's the probably the most cosmopolitan city in China. But at the time, most cities are more or less the same. And, you know, with the borders closed, you know, everyone's pretty much the same. And because in the 80s, it was quite interesting. It's the it's really literally just a decade after the Cultural Revolution. And then the remnants of the Cultural Revolution is still quite obvious in the culture that, you know, most of people don't want to dress with bright color because you want to blend in. You know, most of people don't. Don't really want to buy expensive possessions simply because it was discouraged during the Cultural Revolution just a decade earlier. So, you know, so that 80s is still that time where people trying to be subdued, you know, trying to blend in and, you know, have no possession if possible. So it was a very interesting time. And then the education during that period was quite different because, you know, it was still more about, you know, the revolution than all of that. So it's a very interesting time to be born in China.
0: Um- were you a product of the single child policy at that stage?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in the 80s is where, you know, the policy becomes a little bit more strict and I think by 90s was pretty much, you know, all set. Everyone's just single child. So 80s is the onset of that, you know, policy being filtered through the pretty much everywhere in China. And so the family structure is very interesting because, you know, all of us, we we don't have brothers and sisters. We tend to just play with our neighbors' kids and we sort of, you know, act like brothers and sisters, you know, with neighbours. And, you know, you see lots of kids sort of, you know, roaming about the streets. Uh, In an um, apartment uh, block?
0: Is that where you lived or was it uh, in a, a general neighborhood?
1: Yeah, so it was general neighborhood. So what was interesting, so apartment block was really in the center of the city. You get a few of them. But in the 80s, my grandfather was a migrant into Shanghai. He literally came up the boat and he landed in Shanghai and then he built house by himself. <laughs> so we lived in the build, a building, probably didn't pass any building, you know, sort of code or anything. Um, it didn't collapse and sort of, you know, lasted for many, many years until, you know, it was sold to a property developer. But um, yeah, so, you know, so at the time it was all single house in the neighborhood, pretty much all built by those elder generations and themselves. And where did he come from? He came from a, a small village nearby Shanghai, but there was a lot of flooding and things near Shanghai. This is in the early 1900s. And then when he came to Shanghai, Shanghai at the time was still part of, you know, was not belonging to, to the Communist Party at the time. It was
0: a free trade zone. It was right? a
1: free trade zone. And so when he came, Shanghai was still like the old Shanghai. It was Stories he tell us was quite different. He used to pull a rickshaw, you know, of all the people that sat on it. It was a very, very interesting stories that story. And, heard and did him. you live
0: with the extent of, family or is it just you and your parents or your grandparents were there? How yeah.
1: did it work? So yeah, we, so we all live together. I lived with my grandparents and then because he came from the village and he brought a lot of his brothers and sisters and cousins along. And so we're literally living in the community where there's a lot of people, we all related. And then when the school was built in nearby, so it's literally just a small community on the fringe of Shanghai, not exactly center of Shanghai, but fringe. And yeah. Sounds great.
0: <laughs> Like quite a nice environment uh, for was a, a kid anyway.
1: A, for a kid, it was fantastic, you know, roaming about and did random things and didn't have the toys that, that my kids have today, but, you know, sort of played with everything else. I think the funny – the. F- Probably the most fun time of my childhood was whenever it floods, oh, rains. Whenever it rains, we China uh, has um, torrential rain about May or June, and they rain for like two months. And you know, because our neighborhood the the drain was really poor, so you know the rubbish will get in the drain, and then it will flood. So whenever it rains for a month, it just floods the whole area. And as a little kid, we we'll would take out the those little wooden bucket, we'll be sitting there and as a boat, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be um, rowing about. It was. It was a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, that's right. It was a lot of fun.
0: And tell me a little bit about school. You mentioned the part of the education was learning about the times, and the Cultural Revolution, and and what happened after that. But just generally, was it was it a good education from a, a mathematical, scientific point of view? How did that all work?
1: Yeah, so look, the education is good, but it's just a very, very different sort of structure for education. You know, so I spent the first 16 years of my life in China, went through primary school and middle school, and then I came to Australia, did the middle and then, you know, university and the the like. So I can compare them quite well. So with the Chinese education, the belief is about memorization. So, and the teacher will give you as much information as possible and you go and memorize. And then they believe the more you practice and memorize you will do well. So it's very, very structured sort of learning without sort of, you know, I think one thing lacking at the time was that, you know, I didn't understand a lot of concept, but, you know, it's all about memorizing the formula, memorize all of that. So naturally you'll be very good at numerical things. So, you know, maths and things because it's about memorization. And I find once I come to Australia in year nine, it really surprised me because teacher tried to explain to me <laughs> what why we do certain formula, you know, why we do this. And now I see my kids learning about the basic concept whether it's mathematics or anything else they actually trying to understand it and i loved it it was it was so different because i find with the other way it's very dry and you've got to just constant repeat repetitive repeat repeat and then you get it whereas the australian way the western sort of learning process once i understand it i don't need to memorize i know it and it makes it much more flexible further down the track when i learn more complex concept
0: so it, it molds the way you think about things in general
1: Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So one is a structured mind, one is more fluid and more innovative, you know, so and they're more open minded, so you can explore different ideas compared to the other. So, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly very, very different education system.
0: And before we leave Shanghai, just a little bit about you talked about your dad and your grandfather, what did your parents do?
1: Oh, so in the 80s and 90s, or early 90s, most of the people worked for the government owned organization. So they worked in a chemical factory, and my mom was a chemical analyst. My dad was an engineer in that factory. So they
0: they were well educated?
1: They're well educated. And those factory kind of, you know, the leader or the manager of the organization or the CEO, they kind of like your almost like your your family member and they will dictate everything you do in your life. And then it's the same as, you know, where you live, the local council, it's almost intertwined in your life. So, it's very different from what it is here.
0: <laughs> so, the party, the political parties, always present.
1: So, they're present. They kind of believe, I think they kind of just believe they're you. So, they're there to foster your family and things. And plus, partly those days in in the 80s or even Cultural Revolution time, during those early days, the party always, you know, they create those jobs for people and then it's all controlled by the government. So, yeah, it's very much a structure that everyone followed.
0: And so I gather there wasn't when you come home from school, there wasn't talk about what the share market did that day or was Wall Street up? Oh, I tell or-
1: you what. I tell you what, my dad was one of the earliest person invested in the China Shanghai <laughs> Stock Exchange or China Share so Market. So he was a pioneer. Oh, he was a pioneer. But he was a technical he was a chartist, you know, in those days in early nineties and things, the share market was very immature. You know, there was a lot of volatility in China. And, you know, if you look at the base of the investor or the nature of the investor, they all retail investors. So the the charts were incredibly important. <laughs> but this is before times of computer. China, we didn't have computer until probably 2000. So, you know, the late 90s is when we start seeing computer. So, we didn't have computer. We had those really big, like just my dad had those paper paper literally with lines and he stick them around the house and uh, in my room, but because it's so long because you need to get an annual sort of chart so he can draw lines on them and try to find pictures in them. And so, my whole room, we just covered with those charts. With stock charts. <laughs> And with doctor it was so funny and then he would draw them and then every day he'll make a prediction like beginning of the day he'll be like right I tell you what because of this angle that angle whatever uh, or ego or something he sees and you know it's either up or down <laughs> every day and he's always right of course and uh, but he would make a prediction every day essentially predicting both ways and then see bigger picture in the next day it's fascinating but that's how I uh You sound through. quite obsessed <laughs> he was very obsessed you know he did actually did quite well in terms of getting out of those, but look, you know, investing in those days in China was, you know, nothing more than punting because even though if you understand the company, how much do you really understand what's happening behind the scene in the early nineties? There's not much disclosure, and the share market is just way too volatile at the time. So, but the seed was planted. Then I gather, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> if I can make money out of those lies, <laughs> look, that was the technical charter side. You know, my father always. Uh, Always, always used.
0: So can we go forward? I think you were 16, correct Mm, me if I'm wrong, that you came to Australia. What was the trigger for that and how did your family go about it?
1: well so my mother came to australia first and then she got a visa a student visa to come to australia in 1990 and straight after pretty much after the Tiananmen square the student issue and you know the visa relaxation so my mother came to australia as a student visa and so sorry
0: just to stop Mm. you there so tiananmen square we in australia we all saw Mm. footage of it and reporting around the world but what actually happened was it a, a big event on the ground And then there was the reaction to visa relaxation. Is that what you're saying?
1: Mm, So in Australia, um, which um, Prime Minister? um, Bob Hawke. Bob Hawke, yeah. So he relaxed the visa. Into Australia. Into Australia, from China into Australia. And, you know, a lot of students applied. Mm. And my mother at the time, she was qualified to come to Australia. So she came through first.
0: And you stayed with your dad and your family how, how long was that for?
1: For six years. Uh, oh, really? She came by herself for that long? Yeah, it was It was actually very common for Chinese family during those years. I met many of my school friends and all the parents were like that. So the parents actually separated for a long period of time so that one can come and study and then eventually have a visa and then brought the kids along. It's a very common experience, yeah. And
0: How did you keep in touch with your mum?
1: Oh, on a very, daily,
0: or was, or was that impossible basis? It, it was
1: very difficult because we didn't have telephone. Remember, so to for my mother, so we will have agreed time that she will call us, and in our neighbourhood, so literally, there's you know a few hundred people living in the, like a council sort of area. We'll have share one telephone line, so there will be an old guy, sort of retiree, <laughs> sort of sitting there, and he'll mend the phone, and then someone will call through, and then he'll they will say who they're calling, and then he will send someone to go to that house, knock on the door, saying you got a telephone so we will have a great time or most of people will have a great time of what time she will call and then we sit around in that little room waiting for the call to come through so my mother will call once a week and sometimes a bit harder because like there's 20 people (laughs) waiting for that telephone to finish and then when you talk and everyone's waiting for you can't talk for too long so it it was interesting but challenging periods for me absolutely
0: So you stayed with your dad. You're obviously pretty close to your dad on that basis.
1: Yeah. So closer to my dad and we lived with my grandparents as well. So they provided a lot of help while my mother was away. And she
0: established herself here. She got work and-
1: Yeah, so she got work, but like a very migrant, she had like three, four, five jobs (laughs) Mm. and lots of jobs and so got through the years and, you know, when I came over and she supported me through the thing and then my dad came much later, probably late 90s.
0: So you came after six years and Mm. then he came later again.
1: Mm, That's right. So 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 as a
0: family, you weren't together for- More than a decade.
1: That's right. (laughs) We thrived. (laughs) So, you know, it's incredible. My parents, you know, have been able to do that. Obviously, the purpose is to have a better life. And of course, for me to have a better life, better education and more exposure to the world. If I stay behind in China, my world will be very narrow and, you know. I always say, when I was little, all I've ever wanted to do was to be a waitress, mm-hmm. nothing more. And that's because our world was so narrow, you know I want to be what I can see. Once you come to a country where you know the, every possibility, every job is possible, you kind of just see the limitless possibility, you know, the sky's the limit, really.
0: And you land in Sydney at that 16 years of age. Mm. So you're getting towards the back end of high school. Mm. How was your English?
1: It was horrendous. <laughs> we didn't learn English those days. So,
0: but your uh, mum would have picked up some English, I gather. My
1: mother could speak a little bit, like a just basic communication. So she could get around, she could, you know, do, do things. But my English was... Was really bad because w- those days in China, English was not a compulsory thing. They didn't teach English many classes. Indeed, so when I first came, I have to do six months of language school, where I actually went to not shut a language school in Narabing High School. So they had a little section they teach all the kids migrants.
0: And um, would you do your normal classes or was
1: no? So just English, just English. So actually, how it works is it's just immersion. So they will have you know basic science, general science class and things, but there will be kids range from like eight to 16 and then, you know, but because it's everything's in English, so we kind of just work it out. And this is when I realized our incredible ability to actually, you know, for for two months I didn't understand anything. I just felt sleepy during class, and suddenly by I think by month three I understood. I don't know where it came from, and I suddenly understood everything, <laughs> and and I could communicate. It was it was incredible, you know, how agile our our mind is. Really, when you're young, when you oh I don't know I think that when you're adult it's the same. We just need to allow the possibility to change.
0: Maybe it's just your mind. I can't imagine (laughs) my mind being so flexible. Put yourself in
1: France. You get French in no time.
0: (laughs) So then you started – normal school, or they put you back into classes. And you had, what, two or three years before you graduated? Before I
1: graduated, yeah. So, I started year nine at McKellar High School in Mellyvale, Northern Beaches. And it was, you know, it was great, yeah. So, year nine, straight into the school. It's quite interesting because though I can speak English, but there's still, because I missed the primary school, you know, the building blocks of learning. So, things actually was quite tricky to really get on top of it. You know, not only just English, even like biology and you know a lot of those other things because we missed it, the building block of uh, of the language even today I feel my kids at eight, eight year old you know my son at eight he already know more than I do I think I think his vocabulary is probably better than I than me because of these building blocks of language that I missed
0: and how did you find it socially
1: uh socially it was a little bit hard at the beginning I think it's Naturally, we we'll stick to the migrant because the language was harder, even though I could speak English, but it's much harder to understand the culture. You know, how do you tell a joke? And, and then mm. kind of we feel very shy to approach people to not to mention make a joke, like definitely no joke. Um, <laughs> and because I might, we might not pull it off. And so, but we'll, but just very shy because, you know, it's, it just take a lot of courage to, I remember I have to take so many deep breaths <laughs> before I go and speak to anyone or even to ask for something or even to buy a bus ticket. I still remember I practiced this line of buying a stamp from the post office because the, you know first week my mom said, go buy a, I think it was 47 cents stamp or something. Back then it was 47 cents. And I practiced so many times and I still couldn't say it properly. I think even today, it's like, can I have a 47 cent stamp, please? It's
0: a, it's a tongue twister. <laughs> it's,
1: I know. And then there's a stamp, and stamp. Anyway, it was a very interesting experience.
0: And was there any, many other Chinese kids?
1: yeah so we have a few but a smaller group uh, like you know very small group so we we stay friends for you know for life pretty much uh once and did you have a pact
0: long. that you must speak english to each other or did
1: oh we did try a little while but then you know it's just too hard like because when you first learn english or first learn a new language you don't think in that language you think in your natural own language and then you interpret it and then you translate it into the other one so you just take too long trying to exhausting. tell a joke oh it's exhausting so not it's only until we can start thinking that new language we just couldn't you know it's very difficult to yeah to to speak in that new language
0: <laughs> so let's go forward a couple of years you graduate you obviously did reasonably well and when did you make your mind up that finance or or business yeah. or economics was your calling
1: yeah, look, I just mentioned earlier, share market is always in me with all that, <laughs> with uh, growing up with all that share charts. Look, I, um, you know, when I went to university, so, you know, I took, look, this is not very inspiring, but every Chinese kid would take a business course. I took a double degree, so finance and accounting. So the, in the first year, I remember I was so fascinated with the more economic side of things rather than more accounting side of things. And, you know, have a lecturer. He was quite amazing. You know, he talked about different incentives. Incentives and how people work, and on the macroeconomic front, even the microeconomic front, which was just fascinating. Understanding incentive, understanding why people do things, understanding not the behavior. something you grew up with. No, absolutely not. You know, with the things we grew up is more about actually going back. Yeah, so. The education system in China is about accepting what it is and memorize and work with it. Whereas the education here in, you know, Western economy is more about understanding why that is the case and, you know, and absorb it, you know, understand it and then work with it. Um, so that's quite different. And I find it fascinating. It just opens your mind to, So many possibilities.
0: You obviously thrived in that environment because you enjoyed it. Oh, I loved it. Just at that point, what were you thinking about career-wise and how did you go about trying to get a job Mm. in the industry that led to finance? Because the automatic thing for most people would be, I'll go and work for an accounting firm, Mm. I'll do audit, Mm -hmm. that kind of pathway that leads to other things, but it's the initial step. How did you go about it?
1: Yeah, so, well, first of all, finding a job while I was at university was that uh, every Chinese kid was under a lot of pressure. <laughs> you know, my, I remember my parents was- From because, your parents? From my parents. Because Chinese parents always have this perception of, you know, you you're educated, don't have boyfriend until you get to university. And then you, at university, you just think about what's your job? You know, so you always need to think ahead. They believe a path that you need to follow every single step. Yeah, so, you know, I think at university, I was actually very- One thing about me is that I love to do lots of things. So, so, you know, simply because China was too confining to my imagination. When I come to Australia, I want to do what's possible. I think day one, when in university, I signed up to so many student societies. I think everything possible. And then year two, I was running the Commerce Economic Society. So initially I was doing the marketing, running the marketing for them, and then I would become the president. So I was running that society, Mm -hmm. a student body. We had a bit of funding from university, and then we run a lot of, you know, management consulting programs and things. And I love it. It was because it's, to me, that's not just understanding numbers. It's everything. It's managing people. It's understanding incentive and how we get it all worked together. How do we raise more money? And how do we inspire the next generation to come through and join us? So I find that fascinating. So I did a lot of that as well. But th- that was an incredible experience. I met a lot of people in my university and a lot of people from the consulting side. And I do realize that my skill set is more than just numbers. So accounting just didn't, quite grab me. And I know my skill set. Initially I thought oh, I might be management consulting or maybe strategy and you know a lot of those. And it just happened that this job opportunity available was a part-time when I was in year three. It was a job offer by Aspect Huntley. Yeah. Now later on that got taken out by Morningstar. Now this was a fantastic opportunity to really get to know a little bit of the companies, a little bit of stock recommendation because we were writing newsletter for Ian Huntley. Ian Huntley. You already remember Ian Huntley. Huntley
0: News- that yes. That's
1: right. So we wrote for smaller companies guide and Your Money Weekly.
0: So you're doing this while you're at university. Uh, while while was, was uni- a part-time last job.
1: That's right. So that was last year of university, and I was doing that. I was a junior analyst, of course. You know, really watching how other senior analysts work. But I did have a couple of opportunity to interview management. I remember the company I re- interviewed was Vedante you remember that, right? Well, one of those technologies, Valente, Valente that's yep. right. That's right. I, I think- was Alan it in the, Bracken was that's the- right, Yeah, that's right. I remember him. So that was a very long time ago. So yeah, so, you know, interview them, but I felt incredible because I felt I was just in awe in the presence of, you know, people who were so successful and telling me how they do things. And that really fascinates me, you know, because, you know, I can learn so much from those people.
0: So that was a spark. It sounded Absolutely. like you were hooked.
1: Oh, absolutely. I was hooked and I couldn't get off it.
0: So then when you finished uni, did you get a full-time job at Aspect Hunter? I did,
1: yeah. So so I got the full-time job and then then you became become, a senior analyst? I never became the senior analyst. I left before I became a senior analyst. So I was there for a couple of years and we did lots of coverage and you know of big, small, large companies. And then there was an opportunity. That's one thing about you'll hear my story is that I I jump at every opportunity. I don't kind of, you know, think too deep and further about it, but I know it. There's something about it that attracts me. So that job opportunity is working for a sell-side broker, Stuart Foster, Foster King, mm-hmm. a small stockbroker. He needed a you know junior analyst. And then I just felt that was an opportunity to really get into the real market.
0: So you started an analyst at... At Foster's. That's
1: right. So at Foster's. But what was amazing is that Stuart Foster has given me the opportunity to be the senior analyst, you know, for the first time.
0: And Stuart's a terrific market operator.
1: Oh, he's fantastic. And he has so much market experience. Mm. And, you know, actually, it's so lovely to talk to you. When you know him. And uh, he has so much market experience. And then he will bring me to meet some of his clients as well. To, and also, we'll be hosting meetings with companies and things. It's just brought me so much closer to what share market is, how things are. Are done, the corporate raising, all sorts of activity. It's just been fascinating experience.
0: You learnt those layers, which is always important about <laughs> how the market works.
1: That's right. That's it's right. It's quite
0: dynamic each day. Did you know at that stage, the buy side was where you wanted to head or did that just evolve over time and the opportunity came up? Because a, lo- a lot of analysts do like to think at some stage they would like to be in funds management buying stocks rather than (laughs) selling the ideas on the broken side
1: yeah look i I wish i can tell you that i wake up you know from china i just want to be the farm manager I am today. But uh, look, everything evolves for me. For me, I really go after the experience it provides me, you know, what attracts me. So, you know, at Aspect Huntley, it was really the initial experience of meeting the management and analyzing company treasure hunting. It's like a treasure hunt, you know, that was really exciting. And then moving to Foster stockbroking was really about actually really be inside the market and be accountable. To be very accountable in recommendation that make, you know, make a wrong recommendation, I feel terrible, and I research why I did it wrong. You know, so there's a, accountability was very important, and then in that period and my with my contact with the buy side, you know, it does make me want to be uh, an investor. Because you know, you're
0: selling to the buy side, so you get to know a lot of right. people in the industry.
1: That's right. And I, I think ultimately I want to be judged at the time, well, even now, is I want to be judged on how good an investor I am instead of, you know, I'm pushing this story to you and then I get a cut and then I push on to something else. So it's just very, very different dynamic. And I really, I like to take the responsibility of being able to allocate capital and to partner with businesses that are just incredibly growing.
0: Well, you can relax for a minute. We're not here to judge you, (laughs) we're here to listen to the story. Those couple of jobs, Aspect Huntley into Morningstar, then to Fosters, any good mentors who imparted good knowledge to you? It sounded like you'd learned a lot in that period, but were there individuals that helped you along?
1: Yeah, look, I think every job, there's individuals that help me along. and really help me to, you know, really understand what I'm doing. I think with the first one, with Aspect Huntley, aside from Ian Huntley, mm. will give us, you know, mentoring speech and things. Actually, Ian Huntley always say, write like an eight-year-old. I'll never forget that. Um, he
0: told you to do that.
1: It's write like a, so an eight-year-old. So everyone can understand. Yes. Well, now, now you've cool. got an
0: eight-year-old yourself. That's, uh,
1: that's <laughs> right. That's right. He writes better than me. You know, aside from that, I was working with a senior analyst, Aspect Huntley. His name is John. Russell. He's actually moved on to corporate side now and he worked for many big businesses, helped many big businesses doing M&A and things. Yeah, he was helping me to understand initially about companies and how do I interview, interview skills, you know, interview businesses, how do I get the information I want out of an interview and yet without you know being overly aggressive or any other way that was very important. Still is. Uh, still very, very, also absolutely important. I, I never mastered that so it's a, it's incredibly difficult. And then I you know, at Foster Suburking, King I was working my senior analyst was uh, Michael Henshaw. He, I think at the time he just come from UK. He was an analyst from one of those big houses in UK. And he, you know, he helped me first of all, to write slightly better than, <laughs> than I was. And two is that he really helped me to, to think because at the beginning as an analyst, you just pick a stock and you just want to sell you just want to write about a story, you know, and then whether it's a really good investment or not, you just want to write about the story. Cause it's, you know, it's really exciting. And then you spend a month to write about a Story, kind of feel attached and then you kind of become a little bit compromised with what your real recommendation is but he was the one really helped me to see i remember i wrote an article about this little tech company i liked it but then after i wrote the article i kind of go oh and then he read it he said do you really like it <laughs> <laughs> give me three things of why you like it I couldn't come up with it and then i ditched the report and then it turned out to be a really good decision. But, you know, it's just, it's just along the way, every step of the way, there's always people that help me. I've been very fortunate, help me to refine and understand what investing is. I've got to make mistakes. I made lots of mistakes. You know, actually, there's another mentor is that when I was at Foster Stop I remember writing on Strathfield. and Strathfield Car Radio. <laughs> oh, Strathfield Car Radio. That was at the same time when JB Hi-Fi just listed and then I looked at the difference, you know, as a, what do they call it? Des- desktop analyst, right? So I just go, oh, Strathfield Car Radio is so much cheaper than JB Hi-Fi. Why wouldn't you buy this one? Then things are going well. Their contract with Telstra is going to do well and you know, blah. So I remember I wrote that report and Richard Utrecht from JB Hi-Fi, he he listed JB Hi-Fi, he ran JB Hi-Fi successfully for so many years. He came and saw me. He said, JB, he calls me JB. (laughs) And he said, JB, have you been to Strathfield's uh, shop at all yourself? I was like, "Uh, no, (laughs) I saw the pictures. He's like, a retailer, you've got to go to their shops and have a look to see if you really like it. See how different it is from JB Hi-Fi and i did <laughs> and that was a fantastic advice
0: very good advice it's
1: amazing advice and it's about kicking the tire so these are the little things i learned from you know people around me not necessarily just people i work with but its companies and it's everyone and it's just been incredibly rich experience
0: very gradual but you learn a lot over time when a you lot. look back Yeah. so tell us about tribeca so you you're at fosters and you moved to tribeca mm-hmm. how did that come about and why did you think that one day you could be a good portfolio image because once you go that part way that's yeah. what you want to be i presume yeah.
1: Yeah, so I moved to Tribeca. I was a headhunter from a foster stockbroking to Tribeca. I think I've written a few reports at the time, a few reports that actually the recommendation has done very, very well as a lead analyst. So I was still quite young at the time, early 20s. And so they found me and I joined as a sort of junior analyst, but, you know, given there's a boutique management, so junior as in you still cover the stock, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, you know, there's a lot of people that help you, can give you the advice and help you to form your view and things. Yeah, so when I joined, and I find you know it's it's a quite an easy transition, but I love the experience of being so accountable for every recommendation I make, absolutely accountable. Initially, it was a little bit terrifying because you go, oh, do it. You know, what if it's wrong? And you know, I feel you know it's just that sort of you feel bad for the position uh, for the wrong recommendation. You have
0: some fear that you can't it, do it.
1: That's right, and but it's important because once you you. Do that. Once you make mistake, you kind of need to put aside the emotion and rationally reassess going, well, did I make the mistake or was it just market being random? So it's very important to distinguish between these two. And so this is what I find it's fascinating because, you know, market can be wrong. And but then you've got to be flexible because market's changing. It's dynamic. you got to work with it. You know, it's not you've, that you've
0: got to listen to the market. you got to listen to, to the market in the short term.
1: Exactly. And you've got to listen to the market and how do you, you know, work with the market? Because I don't believe that I can. I'm 100% right all the time. I do believe that we need to work with the market and the information change, I need to change. So that's something, a core belief I've always had. Yeah, so that sort of, you know, has really worked for, you know, even running the portfolio and things.
0: And who were you uh, giving your research to? Who were the portfolio managers at that time?
1: so yeah so at the time sean fenton was a portfolio manager and also we had david elwood who's the founder of the business so he's a he manages small cap fund so i report to them so my research goes to you know the small and then the large and we cover essentially sectors across the size spectrum
0: so you're doing a broad range you weren't just doing retail
1: That's right. So I did a bit of everything. And the good thing is we did rotate the sectors because I had a couple of kids after some time and we had a sector reshuffle and the team structure changed a little bit. So I actually pretty much get to cover most of the sectors, You know, range from property trust to retail to builders to healthcare. I just haven't really covered the resources sector. And you think
0: that's held you in good stead? If you're running a fund like you are today, I've always thought that being a generalist was better than being a specialist mm-hmm. because you can- have a general view and pick up on the key points that might change the value of the stock. That's While right. Well, if you're a specialist, sometimes you can't see the wood from the trees.
1: That is a very, very good point. I think that's the actually one of the key points of being able to run a portfolio is that you need to have this broad-based view of everything, knowing what's happening on the sector level and also on the macro and, you know, the level. I find I met so many people in my lifetime that uh, during my career that, you know, they're so fixated on that individual stock information or or research, they fail to realize that some of the stuff they're doing aren't matter, doesn't matter. You know, some does, some doesn't. So it's... I think this will separate a successful analyst from an unsuccessful analyst is that knowing which factor matters and which doesn't, and that changes as well. So you just got to have a very flexible, open mind and work with what is everyone else doing. This it actually comes back to one of the things that I fascinated me during finance course was behavioral bias. You know, the behavioral finance side of things. You know, this market is filled with behavioral biases and herd mentality and everything else. You know, as a real investor you got to siphon through all of that and knowing you know sometimes if i'm reluctant to sell something if it you know, information has changed and results bad, you know, and the investment thesis is no longer intact. You know, we just got to find that behavioural, recognise that behavioural bias we have and do something about it Mm. and be rational. Very
0: difficult to do. Very Very difficult. difficult.
1: And remember, every day is a fresh day. It's not about how much money you lost. It's about from today, is that the best decision? Incredibly difficult, but I think it's just, you know, this is something it's important to do in this market.
0: And in 2016, I think it was, that you got to manage money rather Mm. than be an analyst. Was there some early wins? Was there some early losses? What do you remember that set you up in that period? Start with the winners. That's always easier. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, look, 2016, it's actually when I, uh, so after I had a couple of kids, it's a transition in, you know, sort of my life cycle. So after I had a couple of kids, after many years on the funds management as well as an analyst, I certainly feel I'm ready to broaden out my horizon. You know, I knew I was ready for the next step, you know, whether it's global equity, whether it's domestic equity, I knew I need to broaden it out. And so in 2016, I put a proposal to actually to Tribeca. I wanted to run a international fund with Asian focus mm-hmm. and, you know, I put together a proposal, put together this. And then I went on many trips to, you know, find my companies and see all of that. And then I put together a model portfolio. And, you know, so so I ran that model portfolio for some time. Only thing is uh, with a small boutique, finding resources is always difficult. <laughs> so I have to do, there's my day job, which is as analyst to cover the Australian shares. And then there's my uh, other job, which is, you know, I, I work on the weekends, I work on nighttime, you know, just to put together my international, run my international fund as a model side.
0: So you're still being an analyst at this time? I was
1: time. still analyst at the time, but I was doing that on the side. I think it the opportunity came as in, you know, within probably eight months of doing so, the decision time came to, for me whether I want to, you know, associate to be a little bit more, work together a little bit more with Sean Fenton or on the longshore fund side where there's real money. Or, you know, I just literally just go, okay, let's everything into this and then, you know, see what we can make out of that. And I think at the time, you know, Sean needed someone to work with him on the funds. Yeah. And then I took that step forward. So, you know, I step in I pretty much try to help him on the fundamental side understand companies and things and whenever he goes so he can go on holiday he goes on holiday and I can run the funds yeah so that's when the transition took place. but at the same time I continue to focus on my international not focus I continue to you know just keep watching of what's happening globally that experience has really helped me to have a global view Mm -hmm. a global view of what's happening and you know once you do you can't go back you know you've got to be able to look from above ego view and also go from below
0: and going back to my question that's an interesting transition and, and learning a lot from that but was there anything that stood out that you thought i picked a winner here i can really do this job Because there's always a bit of doubt, as we talked about before.
1: Yeah, look, I think there's plenty There's plenty Mm -hmm. of them, clearly. That's why it lasted. So, look, one of the things is the first time I went to the Song Conference, that's when I was looking at the international portfolio. So, you know, as my second job, I, you know, I researched and I found a business that I really liked. You know, unfortunately, recently it sort of didn't do quite well. But for the first three years, it was probably one of the best performers just after Tesla. It was a New Oriental. It's the Chinese in the Chinese education space. That company pretty much tripled um, mm-hmm. in the three years since I recommended it. But obviously now it's going through its transition and things need to work through issues at the moment. But that was, you know, that was something that certainly boosted a lot of confidence, you know, when everyone else didn't quite see value in business like that. That's how I normally like to invest as well. You know, thinking about even, you know, Treasury Wine that I recommended last year, when no one else wants to see is when tariff and all of that. All you need to. Do as an investor really at the time was just to stand back, going, hang on, what are you paying at this rate? Mm-hmm. Uh, at this share price, you're not really paying much. So we worked out, you know, what's the, you know, all the inventory that's sitting in there, all these pen folds, how much that's worth, and then we work out the price and then go, you know what, I'm not worried about this tariff even if it comes, and yeah, and that was the right decision. So I think we make a lot of calls as portfolio managers, as analysts, and uh, every time you get it right and. It's not just by luck. When you do get alive because you make did your homework and make the right call, you know, reinforces that the things how we should you know, look at stocks, at the same time, how we should reward ourselves, you know, that we did, you know, pat on a back, going, we did it um, ahead of everyone else. And that's, you know, it's like that's treasure important. hunting. It's like treasure hunting. It's very exciting. Yeah. And, and then this market is full of it. It's, uh, I think in the last five years, I certainly feel like more people are more short term. More investors are more short-term oriented. Whether it's because of structure of the market, because of passive and, you know, all of that, not sure. But if an investor can take three to six month view, almost you can just, you know, make it much easier to generate return.
0: I've got to say I agree. It's very short term on the latest bit of news. Mm. But in another funny way, some of these companies that get enormous valuations, you've got to be incredibly long term to, to oh, stay that's around right. for the value to emerge. So that's it's, right. it's it's a bit of a strange mix of things. So if we go to two thousand and nineteen, mm. Sean leaves mm. and you're in the position to take that senior role mm. a, at the um at the Alpha Plus fund. That was a big step and obviously was well-known around the market. Mm. You were stepping up. How did you feel at that stage?
1: Uh, terrifying. Opportunity or <laughs> terrified? Ther- terrified. Oh, look, I, yeah, that, that's me. So whenever there's opportunity, I, I always go for it. I knew, because I know my potential is- anything you know whatever we make it right so it was terrifying but i didn't know how terrifying it could be so the weekend before so i remember sitting in the boardroom with the management thinking what to do so when sean left the fund is you know pretty much is around just that 300 350 mark and we're just thinking you know sitting around the board the, the board of tribeca i was thinking what what do we do? Do we close the fund? Or, you know, you go, I put a proposal, I said, look, I could do this. Um, I I know how it works. I can run the fund. I have enough experience as an analyst. Yes, I haven't, you know, fully run the funds. I haven't got a track record myself. I have a, you know, model portfolio track record. That was okay. But it's, uh, you know, I, I know I haven't really done that. But I've got a proposal. I'll make it work. And so you
0: were terrified, but you pitched.
1: I pitched. I was, ter- I, I didn't know how bad it could be, but I pitched and didn't really think too much about it. I pitched on the Sunday and then I actually don't know my. Biggest client that well because it's not my fund, it was Sean's fund. So he raised all the money. So I didn't know them very well. But I didn't really think the consequences. So I pitched. And so by Monday, we had about 50 calls to all the clients, and Tuesday we had another 50. Then the following three days, we went to see all the clients, like in Melbourne and things, and we, as in me. And that was terrifying because you know it's a 15-minute call with everyone explaining what's happened and I couldn't tell people that Sean went out and set up his own fund. And I couldn't say anything really. So there was anger. Because that
0: wasn't public yet? Or? It wasn't public. Okay. And
1: I don't know what to say because, you know, think like, I, I never experienced anything like it. It wasn't friendly, right? So it wasn't, you know, he can step up and say, Dream Bay can do this. So I didn't want to say anything bad about him because I wish him well. And, but I didn't, I couldn't say anything. So kind of just go, what do you want to tell me? <laughs> but anyway, I have received very strong support from, my largest institutional clients and then my largest retail clients. So both of these, they underpinned the possibility of me running the funds. So both of these sort of anchored that 350 million at, you know, right at the beginning. And then we were 10% under the benchmark, you know, performance. Shown, yeah, in performance, it was way behind. And so within 12 months, but I knew I couldn't fail, I could, not, could not fail. There's no possibility of failing. Within 12 months, we caught up on that 10% underperformance. So we went neutral first, 12 months and then our farms started growing but very small in the next 12 months so in two years we tri- more than tripled so we're now over a billion dollars and from flow from both institution and retail and we been rated number one long short for the three-year running because i've been running just close to three years number one long short in australia by mercer so you know not only we caught up the underperformance we outperformed as well in this environment so you know obviously you know our team has worked incredibly hard but that's you know that's really really helped to yeah
0: and ironically did COVID help because we that Mm. period is known as a big sell-off and a big rebound incredibly Mm. volatile for that period do you think that was a good thing for you personally, that you adjusted to that environment well and you you know gave you an opportunity. To get those results
1: yeah look on the high side yes <laughs> on the high side we've done incredibly well however for me running only run running a fund for the first time f- within 12 months we suddenly have the market collapse and then the subsequent rebound to be able to outperform in all of those environment was a very new experience you know i in here i do need to give credit to my husband he ha- actually has used to be a portfolio manager at macquarie then he was a portfolio manager at cadium So he has had more than 10 years of portfolio management experience. That was the first thing he said to me when it, when it crashed, when it crashed, first thing he said to me, he's like, I've seen this before. (laughs) He's like, you need to think about, you know, all of that. And, you know, and there was fear and everything, all the emotion like everyone else. But the opportunity was just become incredibly, you know, clear in front of me. You know, we, we start buying by the end of March. Mm-hmm. You know that literally That's that was right. the bottom in the market end March. market
0: bottomed on the 23rd or 24th right. of March. Yep.
1: Yeah, so you know we did lots. Of, so we start buying then. But the thing is, you know, so I took the prudent uh, route, which is when you first buy things cheap during market crash, you buy hard asset stuff. Sydney Airport is the first one that I bought. Centre Group, Ramsey, Healthcare. You know things that has hard assets, I knew they, you know, they will come back. Eventually they will come back. That's before the government even stepping in with stimulus and things. So you know, once the government steps in, you know, you buy retailers, you buy all these other things. But initially, it was just a steady one, safety ones. You buy them because you see this is once in a decade opportunity of buying those assets.
0: So it wasn't sleepless nights. It sounded like you enjoyed that period. Uh,
1: I enjoyed that period. It was, uh, you know, as you, you can see my energy, I get very excited when I see opportunities. You know, when I'm not excited is when the market kind of status quo, you don't really see anything happening. You know, that period, we just saw so much opportunity. It's probably sleepless nights as in too, too much excitement. I remember my clients called me, this is one thing, I stay very close to my clients, especially during, you know, such crisis, my clients don't know what's happening and I want to share with them what I see and how I see things. So I spoke to them end of March, first week of April. I remember my clients was a bit unsure, you know, they advise other people's money and, you know, they, they feel a little bit nervous when market crash like that. And, uh, you know, I shared my insight, I share with them, you know, what I see is the opportunity and, uh, you know, I share how I position every way. And, you know, it's, it certainly helps to, you know, to be on the same level of of how we see things and they you know they they invested more with us through that period and they've done incredibly well
0: and can you tell us a little bit about the alpha plus fund it's long short mm. do you structure in a certain way a 130 30 or 150 50 mm. do you keep it under parameters or is it a lot more flexible than that
1: it is quite flexible but I normally keep it quite steady just simply because I feel I can generate a lot of return without taking on additional risks. You know, if you are, if I can make so much money without taking on that additional risk then it's it's So good. when you
0: say additional risk what what does that mean oh, you I- don't because just just for the listeners and mm. some will know and some won't if you have a 130-30 fund mm. you go out and you short 30% of your capital mm. and you borrow that stock and you sell that in the market, money comes in and mm. then you can invest your capital plus that 30%. Mm. So you end up 130% long, 30% mm. short. Mm. But what you're saying is you didn't really need to go that short and have that, because then you've got 160% exposure to the market.
1: That's right. So what I'm saying is that, so we could go up to 150, 50. So this is the maximum we could go to. So that means I'm um, two 200% market. Yep. So, you know, you could do that but normally i sit at that 125 or 13030 so much a little bit less than you know the maximum i could go to i simply just find when i do become that leverage to you know expose or that leverage unless i'm highly convicted i just don't see the payoff you know to generate the return given the volatility the the risk additional risk you take on because you are gearing more into the portfolio you
0: are borrowing more stock mm-hmm. exactly and so that means you're always or pretty well always got Short sold stocks in your portfolio?
1: Yeah, I do. I do.
0: How do you find that? That's normally difficult on a couple of fronts. People, companies don't necessarily like that. So it's difficult in terms of reputation. Mm. But if you get a short wrong, it is worse than getting a long run in many ways because mm. it gets bigger in your portfolio and mm. it becomes a bigger headache.
1: Mm, that's right. So I always run my short book quite differently from most of other short sellers, or as especially those you know a little bit of malicious short sellers. So for us, the short selling a lot of time, you know, it's a lot of time is about funding short. So you know, so say if I want to buy a very expensive growth company, you know, most of the long only manager, you know, if you can't short, it's very hard to buy a expensive growth company, especially if it's It doesn't make money Uh, simply because if you buy it, it makes your whole portfolio very volatile. You know, the the stock can move. If the market goes down 1%, that stock can move 10%. Whereas uh, a longshore fund, I can... Go buy that growth company, even if it's really expensive, because I know it's the best in this, in its, you know, arena and it's innovative, it future-proofs my portfolio, but I can show other stuff that is very similar. And these are, are the other companies where I see the opportunity of share price falling. So that way I keep my portfolio still pretty neutral. You know, I'm not. Any more expensive than anyone else but at the same time i gain exposure to buy a very high quality business the reason they're expensive because they're high quality businesses and that is These growth profiles are very difficult and rare to come by. So, you know, it just gives me a lot more flexibility in doing so. And I do find, you know, to have the ability to short in that sense, you know, give me really just a lot more flexibility. Now we do sometimes short because we know the earnings misstated. So for a certain company, now with these ones, we tend to be a lot more tactical. So, you know, there'll be catalysts. We're expecting a result. We're expecting this. Once Once it's done, we reassess if we made money and our catalyst passed we close it you know during many periods in the last 12 months we heard stories of all these short sellers you know hitting the wall and things you know I think it was January and February this year where the GameStop went through the roof and others you know we've done actually really really well out of those periods because we run one is we we don't run stale shorts so that means you know once we make money we move and then because we constantly scrape market for the long opportunity as well so some of the shorts heavily short to stock we actually own so we actually have done very well out of those baskets, uh, or out of those t- two particular periods. You know, so that it does really add to, you know, cement our theory that you know how we run this portfolio really gives you upside exposure to the market as well as protection. To your best ideas. That's, That's right true. to ideas, and as well as protection to the downside as well.
0: So, where do you select your universe from? Is it just Australian stocks, or is it? Yes. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, so uh, at this point, it's Australia first. Top
0: do, 100 or
1: so. I can do most of them. Needs to be top 200, but I can go outside top 200. So sometimes it's IPO stocks, and sometimes it can be really small stock where we do see a lot of opportunity. So it's a reasonably flexible mandate.
0: And the portfolio would normally have how many stocks in it?
1: Portfolio will have just under 100 stocks in there. As I talk to you, the reason being, you know, we got probably 30 short and 70 long. And then those shorts are, you know, when we don't run a concentrated position, then it's kind of a basket of them just to manage our overall portfolio exposure.
0: So we sit here and it's around that billion. You said it's just gone past a billion. What, what's the potential for this fund? Can it grow much larger?
1: There's absolutely. So you know we estimate that probably up to two billion dollars, one and a half two billion mark simply because most of our stocks are from ASX 200, they're very, very liquid stocks and because we don't take you know, the large short positions, it doesn't really take us much to to move them. So we don't find any liquidity exposure or constraints at all. You know, if anything, you know, we find the, the market's good for that sort of environment. Now, anything beyond that, certainly, you know, I talk to my ambition of Asian or global equities. So eventually I'll have something in that space just because, you know, I love investing and, you know, the more companies I can see, the more business models and, you know, all these regions are Asian regions and other places, they feel with those innovative ideas and growth businesses where we just don't have access here you know i really like to have something that i can you know show my clients uh, because my clients has been demanding product like that i want to help them to you know create something that you know that's yeah
0: we'll stay tuned for that absolutely (laughs) so it'd be wrong of me not to ask you here we are we've had that recovery we talked about from the COVID recovery even though there's still patches of COVID. europe's doing it hard at the moment and so on and asia did a bit earlier in the year what does the market look like and are you, are you quite upbeat in general terms going out the next couple of years? I know you're a stock picker at heart, mm, mm. but are you bullish the market?
1: I'm certainly bullish the market for the next, you know, for the near term. I think uh, we have all heard from the companies that, you know, the, the earnings are going well, the recovery is well on track, even though we've got a bit of supply chain disruption, but that should ease in the next six to 12 months. US reporting season. You so know.
0: you're not overly worried about the inflationary
1: mm-hmm. pressures? You think- uh, we're I th- gonna- I think it's short term. So transitory is the word they use, but it just lasting a bit longer um, because, you know, ships still can't transitory go anywhere. Plus, transitory like, plus, l- like it may plus. last 12 months. <laughs> look, uh, but look, you know, I think investors do need to be realistic about interest rates, right? So it has to go higher. You know, it's, uh, it's simply because we are at the emergency level, you know, the low interest rate, the emergency level for COVID. you remember the banks, every bank around the world cut the interest rate and they put all the stimulus? That's because of, you know, the COVID, the pandemic and so everyone was throwing money at it, but eventually that emergency level needs to go because it needs to, don't need to be in the system. And then, you know, once we recover to a more normalized sort of economic activity, so that's coming, but that's probably, you know, ne- next calendar year that we'll see some interest rate increase, but that's nothing alarming like some, you know, bond manager might suggest. <laughs> it's just a normal way of well, the getting the markets back to seem business. to be doing a
0: lot of that work now mentally, getting ready for that.
1: That's right, and it's been incredibly volatile. So I think what's happening is that the bond market, there's a lot of traders in the bond market does try to get ahead of themselves. And then we see those, you know, volatility in that market. It does mean that our share market might potentially become a bit more volatile. At the moment, it hasn't been. It just keep going higher every day. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, you know, we will see more volatility, but look, over the next 12 months, things should do pretty well, just because recovery is on track. Interest rates shouldn't move, as, surprise anyone, and supply chain pressure will ease, and commodity prices is okay. You know, oil price is high, but the rest of commodity price is okay.
0: So, inflation in check, markets to gradually move higher best to have your money in the market rather than in other asset classes.
1: Absolutely, in the market and don't just buy ETF. You want to put in with active manager because market has done incredible return since pandemic and that kind of return is not going to be repeated. Uh, It will be positive, but it won't be enough for you to future-proof your portfolio, future-proof your return over the longer run. So be active, put your money with active managers.
0: So what I ask most fund managers is that we've had this transition over many years now towards what you're just talking about there etfs and passive investing you'd still think in heart of hearts that stock picking active investing that you do and i do has got a long-term future
1: Absolutely. I think what how market will move is that there will continue to be a lot of money in passive and in ETF and, and the like. However, there will be a shrinking, but it will be a very profitable or very healthy group of active investors that do very, very well from here on. Simply because, you know, market become passive, the information flow is not as as well, and it actually really rewards active investor, good active investor. Not, not invested that sort of follow the trend, which is follow passive, then what? work, it has to be someone who's willing to do the work, stake their reputation on something that they know is going to work out well. At the same time, be flexible, work with markets, see what's happening. You It's a fine, delicate balance, but I think it actually means active investor group will become healthier and potentially will grow, but they just got to be good.
0: Well, I feel like I might have a job for a bit longer now. (laughs) Jim Bay, you came to Australia and now it sounds like you want to go out and take over the rest of the world. (laughs) We wish you all the best and we thank you very much for your time today.